Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Sheep Thrills. Um, as always, much discussed. We got a lot to talk about today. I'm just gonna preface this in the beginning that we're gonna get into some uh, serious topics this episode, uh, just because it was a uh, you know kind of upsetting week in a kind of domestic goings on here. I'm trying to like mix it up, keep things a little bit lighter. Um, but towards the end of the episode, we are going to be talking about the Nashville shooting. Um, so if that's something that you don't want to listen to, just know that that's going to kind of be the last 15 minutes of the show. Um, but again, we got a lot to talk about today. going to start things off a little bit lighter. We're going to talk about um, AI. We've kind of hinted at it a lot past couple weeks, but it's been a big topic of conversation. So we're going to talk about AI art. We're going to talk about kind of what the current conversations in Congress are about technology and kind of the way that technology is going. Uh, get into that for a little bit. We are going to also talk about the protests that have been happening happening in Israel and France. Um, obviously, two very different issues, but kind of similar in how they have um, presented themselves. Uh, so we're going to talk about both of those cases. And then we are going to wrap up by talking about the shooting in Nashville um, and what that all means, you know, kind of in terms of the... Um, larger conversation about gun reform in this country and kind of a whole bunch of other issues that have come along with it. So again, just a little bit of a warning there. I did, I'm, <laughs> I originally was going to talk about Nashville, like in the middle of the show. And as I was writing my notes, I was getting so worked up that I was like, mm, this has to be the last thing. I just need to be done after I do this bit because I'm not going to be able to like go back and talk about like AI um, after I do this segment. So anyway, we're going to get into all of that. So again, lots to talk about. So we are going to just jump right into it and talk about AI art and kind of the open AI revolution. Um, so the Awesome. The reason that we're talking about this right now, obviously it's been a topic of conversation that's come up a lot in recent weeks, recent months, um, but the reason that I kind of thought that it'd be a good time to talk about it now um, is because of a recent viral image that popped up online of the Pope wearing this very cool white puffer jacket. And everyone went a little crazy over it because it was an incredible image. Like it was just really a cool picture. Um, but eventually it was pointed out to everyone that the image was actually AI generated. Um, and this freaked me out. And I think it freaked a lot of people out um, because there have been a lot of AI generated images that have popped up over the past couple weeks. I know we talked last week about the AI generated like Donald Trump arrest images. Um, and like those, like it, it, if you were just scrolling by it really fast, you would say, oh, that's that's real. Okay, whatever. Then you go back at it, go back to it, take another look and immediately be like, no, that's clearly a fake image. Um, but this picture, like even if you go back a bunch of times, which I did, like I saw it several times on my feed, I didn't realize it was AI until someone explicitly pointed it out to me. And then again, like once you get that indication, you go and you're like, oh, yeah, his hands are a little screwed up 
And, like, you can kind of tell that it's, like, kind of weird and fuzzy around the edges. Like, you can kind of tell that um, it's it's kind of a generated image and not entirely real. Um, so that that's, that's definitely, like, a concerning process, though, that even if you're seeing something multiple times, you're not 100% sure what's real, what's fake, until someone explicitly points it out to you. Um, and so, of course, that's a policy concern. Um, and it's also kind of coming on top of concerns about um, kind of how chat GPT is revolutionizing learning and kind of how computer learning works. Um, there's kind of these two dual concerns in the AI field right now. And one is, you know, our, our creative field going to last are we be going to be able to still like test how people write um, and how people learn if they have these um, kind of free resources that can kind of do all of that work for them? That's kind of on one end. And then there's also the kind of policy concern about everything um, that we're going to kind of get into. Well, we'll just get into that now. So, you know, the, the, the detractors of investing in AI uh, specifically in like the public policy field, the biggest concern with, I think, the technology sector at large, and kind of this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about last week with the TikTok hearing, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more down the line as well. Um, there's a lot of concerns about disinformation and the way that technology is used to spread disinformation and misinformation, um, and in a lot of cases, non-information. Um, social media is able to present information as fact and people see it and because of, I don't know, ethos, pathos, logos, something, it's a lot more, people are convinced that it's a real thing, that it's a real um, outcome, it's a real piece of information and then they don't look critically at what's actually going on and like what's the, the basis um, of the facts that are being presented. And of course, with things like AI art and AI generated images, obviously like a picture of the Pope in like a fun jacket isn't the most harmful thing possible, but it is going to be a pretty major issue when they, um, you know, are able to make really hyper realistic images of politicians doing something illegal or doing something really, really wrong putting that on the internet, kind of presenting it as fact. And even if people recognize eventually down the line that it is um, AI generated, you know, you can never take something off the internet. And if something is able to spiral so fast that it becomes kind of a, a common conception, there's no taking that back. And that's a really big risk to national security, to people's livelihoods. Um, there's a lot of really significant impacts that can arise from the disinformation that AI is generating. Um, and then there's also kind of, again, I was talking about there's some kind of like human issues with it as well. Um, like the AI language generation, that's been a pretty big issue for schools, like learning how they can work with AI instead of against it in assessing writing skills. Um, but AI art, AI art systems have kind of a, a similar, like a tangentially related issue, um, just in terms of kind of plagiarism. And the way that 
these AI art systems work basically involve them stealing art forms from real artists, reproducing them, kind of reproducing the artistic style or the content of the piece, then giving it away for free um, without the consent of the artists. So a lot of these artists don't know that their work is being fed into this big giant AI algorithm. Um, and then people are basically able to get a piece of their art for free, even though uh, they weren't the ones that like had a real hand in creating that piece. So obviously this is a big issue for artists because they aren't being consulted. They're basically having their art taken from them without their consent. And in turn, you know, there's a big conversation about, oh, are, like, are, is the art industry going to die? Because why are you going to pay people to create a piece of art when you can just steal their style online and then just go from there. You don't ever have to like actually work with an artist to do that. Um, and of course that I think we may get to a point where that is the case. However, as it stands, AI art is not good enough to really, uh, I don't think take away many jobs. For example, and I'm gonna post this on Instagram, so go and look at it. Um, I fed into an AI art generator. I said, give me a logo for a politics show called Sheep Thrills. It's like, get, come on, I, I, I'm not a good, I'm not, you know, graphic design is not my passion. Like, give me a new logo. And the logos that it gave me were ridiculous. They were so bad. None of the words made any sense. So like, you know, once AI learns the English language, I guess maybe that'll be a concern. Um, but as of right now, I, I think that things are pretty safe. Um, but that was a very funny little giggle that I had for myself while I was, while I was uh, investigating AI art. Um, it just did not give me what it needed to give me. That being said, I was also on the free version. I'm sure that, you know, the, the people who are paying for things have a higher grade of, of these generators. But um, regardless, just like an interesting, interesting thing, which also brings um, the conversation that I'm going to kind of get into um, about what the risks are of AI versus what AI actually has the capabilities of doing. And I think that there's a pretty big gap between those things um, that obviously we know that technology improves at a rapid rate. And so we know what the potential of that technology is. Um, but it's just like right now, right at this moment, should we be freaking out? We're going to get into that. Um, but also this is tangential and I know that like the AI art thing and like the way that, um, artists are able to earn, interact and respond to it isn't necessarily just like a political conversation, but I think that it's very interesting and I want to talk about it and I have complete control over the show. So this is not a democracy. This show is not a democracy. I'm talking about what I want to talk about. Anyway, I also think that this conversation about art brings up a really interesting conversation about like how art is defined. And I guess this could be a policy implication because there's, I'm sure there's like legislation that gives like some kind of official designation to how art is defined. Um, and maybe this is going to cause some kind of changes in how art is defined. Um, but I think the like a big part of the art industry 
is that over time, the definition of art has changed and people have grown to accept and reject different things as art. So like you think about like the modern art era and you think about like the, the, the different forms of modern art that we now accept, like the big like cubes and like the kind of weird colored um, canvases. Like some people consider that to be art, some people don't. When it first emerged, like a lot of people didn't consider it art, especially the existing artists um, who were kind of trying to compete against those that like kind of new approach to art. Um, and I think that it's very interesting now that we see kind of the same thing. And like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but I'm just putting it out there that we have a lot of artists today saying, oh, like that's not real art. Like there's no way that that's real art. Like we can't accept that to be real art. But like artists have said that at every juncture and like, are we gonna look back on this in 30, 40 years, be in an art history class and kind of scoff at these people who refuse to accept new um, kind of revolutions in art? I don't know. I think that it's interesting. It's just like an interesting conversation. And I think that it also brings up the idea that like, does art necessitate a human touch? Is that what makes art art? And is it the human aspect of art that makes it art? Um, and you know, like I accept digital art um, to be real art, but is this like AI generated art that no human really had an impact in making? Um, is that real art? But then when you think about it, okay, well, was it the person that created the algorithm? Who wrote that algorithm? Are they the ones who, um, are they the artists? Because that was the human touch that went into creating this art. I don't know. I think that it's a complicated situation. I think it's difficult to regulate, bringing it back to politics um, because it's difficult to regulate art. That's kind of an accepted thing because defining those things are so difficult. You know it when you see it, I guess. But anyway, I just think that's an interesting part of this conversation. Even though it's somewhat tangential to kind of policy and politics, it's still interesting. So let's get in now back to politics a little bit about kind of how politicians have been responding to this um, kind of recent AI boom. Um, so Chris Murphy, who's a senator from... Connecticut, Connecticut. Mm. I know everyone loves this. I'm gonna Google it. Chris Murphy, United States Senator from the state of Connecticut. I'm God's gift. Anyway, so he tweeted out the other day, I'm gonna read this whole quote as it stands. Um, Chat GPT taught itself to do advanced chemistry. It wasn't built into the model. It decided to teach itself, then made its knowledge available to anyone who asked. Something is coming. We aren't ready. Which, like, beyond the melodrama is, like, silly. This, this tweet's also kind of coming on the heels of um, a article and uh, two podcast episodes of The Daily, three maybe, about um, AI art and about Bing's new AI um, search feature. 
And so a lot of this has kind of stirred up a lot of um, controversy, drama, dare I say, about um, AI and what AI can do. Um, and the daily podcasts, which if you haven't listened to them, they are very interesting. I would recommend it despite being like, you know, potentially melodramatic. Um, basically this, the journalist like kind of baited the AI feature into becoming evil and then was like, oh my God, AI is evil and self-aware. Like it was like, like it asked the, the robot, oh my gosh, are you self-aware? And the robot was like, mm-hmm, sure am. I know that's what you want to hear, so that's what I'm going to say. So anyway, that's kind of just like built up this like larger conversation about the capabilities of AI. And it's good, in my opinion, and in the opinions of a lot of experts, it's all well and good to be cautious of AI, cautious of algorithms and all that. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty clear that things are being stirred up for clicks. And also politicians have no idea what they're talking about in terms of technology. Um, and that's particularly upsetting for me because Chris Murphy is supposed to be one of the younger guys that actually knows what he's talking about. Um, so it kind of, again, it begs a question, like, what are these AI algorithms? What do they actually do? And they learn from inputs. So when the New York Times journalists ask the AI bot to, like, are you self-aware? What they said in this podcast episode was the bot looked at all of the, you know, articles and books and movies about evil robots and knew that what the searcher wanted was for them to say, yes, I am self-aware. Because that's what all of the writing kind of about AI bots says. Um, and so that's why it responded the way it did. That And like it's also, so the there's a quote from the Daily Beast kind of explaining exactly how these um, systems work. And it basically says it uses a data set drawn from a massive corpus of books, scientific journals, and articles from different internet sources like Wikipedia and news websites. So it doesn't and can't teach itself advanced chemistry because it's a predictive text bot like the one on your phone. So that means it's not teaching itself anything. It's not sentient. However, the bots are able to emulate and kind of guess what human language and emotions look like. So they're able to kind of guess what you want to see, which I think is the biggest danger, right? So like if this technology becomes good enough, it can potentially emulate human emotions so well that we aren't able to differentiate between what's a robot and what's real. Uh, and they also, as a lot of people have pointed out, have no commitment to telling the truth. So they're not looking at this information, deciding what's real, deciding what's fake. They're just taking in all the inputs and then spitting it back out. So if they, if there's, because, because there's already so much misinformation on the internet, if bots take that all in, they're going to be able to use that to kind of spread misinformation, spread disinformation, spread non-information, right? So there's no way to know if what you are getting from that AI bot is actually a good thing, the truth, which I think is probably the, the biggest danger, you know, like it just reproduces without, um, without question. And so there are a lot of issues with AI, indicates the fact that it needs to be regulated. Um, 
I love regulation, if you can't guess from the past several episodes of the show. Um, what Chris Murphy presented indicates that there is just a larger mis- misunderstanding about what AI is, what the risks are. And this goes into the whole question of the fact that politicians don't understand technology and are not prepared to legislate on this rapidly changing industry. And we just talked about last week with the bank crashes, we know that the technology section is extremely volatile. So it's got economic implications, it's got um, political implications, it's got, um, you know, just societal implications on how we consume information, how we spread information, um, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, so this is going to have technology has an implication on every facet of society and our politicians aren't capable of legislating on those issues and that's a pretty big issue and i think like the tiktok hearings that we talked about last week that i would have liked to talk about more this week but we just don't have the time um those hearings were probably important it probably was important that we kind of get to the root of a lot of things with with tiktok it's important that we have some kind of regulations in that field. But because these politicians have no clue what they're talking about, they get laughed off the stage. And now, instead of us having a conversation about the potential risks of our data being shared, our data privacy, everything like that, what we're talking about is, oh my God, isn't it so funny that so-and-so doesn't know how Wi-Fi works or doesn't understand how a Wi-Fi router works? You know, like those are the conversations that we're having. And we're not having substantive conversations about the actual policy. And that's embarrassing to me. Um, And I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know if it's electing more. I mean, the answer is electing more young people. I do know what the answer is. It's electing more young people. Um, And it's electing. It's kind of getting rid of people who have been in Congress for a million years who will never actually be impacted by the outcomes of these policies and thus don't really care about learning about it. Um, and I think that that's a, uh, a, a pretty big issue. But anyway, I've spent way too long on this section, so we're going to just move right on. And we are going to talk about Israel and France. So Again, there have been a lot of protests going on throughout Israel and France. I thought I'd do a kind of a quick hit on both of them in one go. Um, Both widespread protests um, that seem like they're going to have some kind of impact on the each country's kind of regime um, and their leadership. They're both kind of leader leader. They're both examples of leaders presenting policies that I think the general population doesn't agree with, and then kind of using the legislative tools um, at their disposal to kind of like shoehorn the policies through, um, which is causing kind of some widespread uh, anger and disagreement kind of across the political spectrum uh, and across the country just kind of based off of you know, hey, if we don't agree with this policy, maybe you shouldn't just force it through. So we're kind of going to get into both of those, what they mean, etc., etc. So in France, Macron 
my my dude i don't know i don't know anything about him all i know is that he's married to his former teacher which i just think is so funny um he's married to his former teacher sorry i just needed to move the mic because i'm you know i'm relaxing i'm 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 settling in to talk about france um He's married to his, like, childhood best friend's mother, who was their teacher in, like, middle school. Which is just, like, the whole thing. I might be, like, totally saying the wrong thing about that, but it really makes me giggle. It's so upsetting, like, on so many levels. But anyway, I'm happy for him. Um, But anyway, he recently proposed pension reforms in France that will increase the retirement rate from 62 to 64. Um, And this policy is deeply unpopular, as you can see from all the protests, um, but Macron has continued to push it through. Um, Social reform was a kind of the flagship idea of his 2022 campaign. And basically what he was arguing is that the current system You know, they have everyone, I mean, most, I guess, Western countries have a similar kind of welfare system to the U.S. where, you know, like with us, with Social Security, we pay into Social Security when we're working. Those Social Security benefits go to um, kind of help retirees. And then it kind of is like a self-circulating system so that by the time that generation is in retirement, then the younger generation who's working is paying for them and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the same system that they have where the working population pays for retirees. However, over the past however many years, obviously the, um, um, uh, what's it called? How long it takes, how long you're living (laughs) is going up pretty significantly. So people are living a lot longer and they're staying, like they're retired for a lot longer because they're still retiring at the same age. They're working the same number of years, but they're living a whole lot longer. So there's, and there's, you know, birth rates are going down, et cetera, et cetera. Something, this is kind of a trend we see all over the place. So there's less people working, trying to support a growing number of old people who are retired. Um, and that's not politically or economically feasible anymore. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's the same kind of issue that we're seeing in the United States, um, where like, personally, I don't expect to see a dollar of social security. Like that money is not ever gonna come to me um, for a myriad of reasons. But one of them being that the kind of current generation of retirees is gonna soak up so much money um, that it's not going to kind of continue to be a feasible system long term, whatever. So again, old people living a lot longer is putting a lot of strain on our on our social and economic systems and like on those welfare systems, which again, like in France has been a pretty significant issue for a pretty long time. Um, and the pension system in France is extremely generous. Um, it's one of their like main things that they love about being French is their welfare system. Um, they protect it. They're, they're have, you know, they make the most money in retirement and they uh, retired like the, some of the youngest 
retirees, like retirement age of any Western country. Like it is, it is a core part of their political economic systems realities. Like it, you, you do not try to raise the retirement age in France. You will not be able to do it. Um, and again, there so that in there have been similar pushes for these reforms um, in France over time. There have been a lot of protests, or a lot of re- pushes of reform, and then subsequent protests. There was, I think, I was reading there was one in like 2010. There was one in 2014. Like this has been a poli- an issue that politicians have been like, guys, like we can't pay for it anymore. Like there's no way for us to pay for it anymore. And the French people are like, okay, and whose problem is that? Like, figure it out, which is honestly so elite, you know? I think it's great. But, um, right, they're saying, like, if the reforms are so totally necessary, like, you'll be able to figure it out um, without causing, like, without forcing me to retire two years later. Um, and so the, the question is now for Macron's government is, like, how do you get people on board um, if the reforms are so necessary, but like they can't get people to agree that it's an important thing. So because appealing to that economic argument, like appealing to the idea of the deficit is just not working. Um, and so basically what they've been trying to do, what they've done is forcing the government to pass the changes. So there's an article in their constitutions, Article 49.3, which basically allows them to quote unquote crowbar the reforms past the National Assembly. And they did that, um, which is extremely controversial, controversial, and not only sparked a lot of outrage from the people, but also sparked a lot of outrage from the um, politicians and political parties on either end of the political spectrum, you know, overriding the legislature in any way and any kind of governmental system is never going to be looked on super favorably. Um, so they're shoehorning these these agreements through. Not great, but they're doing it. So what is the outcome then going to be for Macron's government? Uh, he's probably safe for now. I don't think he's going to get impeached. Nothing I read said he was going to get impeached. I also don't know how impeachment works in France, and there's only so much research I'm willing to do. So if you think he's going to get impeached over this, I guess, like, let me know. Um... But it's going to also be a lot more difficult for Macron to get any of his other social reforms done for the next several years of his term. He kind of used any kind of political clout or buy-in that he had here and now. So he's kind of used it all up in one go, which, you know, may be like a good thing that he chose his one issue and he's dying on that sword. Um, But again, like he had a whole slew of educational reforms and things like that that he was going to try to do. Uh, he's not going to get any of those things done, probably, because there's going to be so little support for him um, more broadly kind of going into the rest of his term. Um, And again, there's been widespread protests, including general strikes. There's been issues at airports, um, smoke bombs, kind of the whole bit all across Paris, kind of in in cities across the rest of France. I love, I love France. And it's been really funny because these protests have been going on for a pretty long time. And actually, I was in Scotland over um, spring break. Delightful. 
ask me about the Scottish independence movement. And um, we were on a day trip uh, into the Highlands and we were talking to this other group of girls that also happened to go to GW, which was just wild. And they're like, oh yeah, well, we, you know, we weren't supposed to come here. We were supposed to go to, um, we were supposed to go to France, but with all the protests, like our flights got canceled, like we couldn't go to France. So we came here instead, which was like hilarious to me. But anyway, a lot of, a lot of the girlies trips were getting, um, were getting messed up because of these protests, which I think probably is a blessing in disguise for the French people because of how much they loathe the tourists. But anyway, let's now move on to talking about Israel for a couple minutes. Um, similar but different situation, obviously. Um, widespread protests going on, of course, over a reform that is they're trying to force through the systems, um, but obviously based on a very different issue and in a very different political climate, uh, just kind of a very different climate in general. Um, so... Israel's leading coalition has basically been looking to pass judicial reforms. Um, and the kind of main package of these reforms include a couple of big things. So one is allowing Israel's parliament to override the Supreme Court with a simple majority vote. Um, one would give the ruling coalition the ability to appoint Supreme Court justices. Um, one would take away the Supreme Court's ability, the Supreme Court's authority to review the legality of Israel's basic laws, which are basically the Constitution. Um, so it's basically providing a lot more um, parliamentary oversight to the judicial system and basically taking away a lot of their ability to govern, a lot of their ability to kind of serve as an independent judicial force. Um, so, you know, we, again, kind of reconceptualizing this in terms of the United States, we talk a lot about checks and balances and kind of an independent um, judiciary and, you know, whether or not the judiciary is really independent because of the way that Supreme Court justices are selected, it kind of still is, it, it's supposed to be a neutral arbiter to um, kind of the federal government and to the legislature and all those things. So these kinds of, again, because Israel's constitution is very much based off of the United States in many ways, um, except for, of course, they don't have a president. They have a prime minister at whatever. Um, <laughs> um, what was I saying? I got so distracted just then. Boy, oh boy. Um, Anyway, basically, it just takes away a lot of their independence. It takes away a lot of the checks and balances that currently exist for their um, judicial system. And obviously, that has sparked um, a whole lot of concern across the political spectrum. Um, it basically, the concern right now, the phrase that I've read kind of repeatedly, is that there's concern throughout Israel and throughout parts of um throughout parts of the, the actual government, throughout the world, um, that these reforms are going to make the country um, dangerously undemocratic. Um, and this has launched widespread protests um, and a general strike of the whole country. So um, kind of all of the unions are part of one big 
monster union and basically the, the the president of the union was like nope we're not doing it and the whole country shut down um which is so interesting and not any t- anything we'll see in the united states because of how good organized labor is throughout the rest of the world but not in the united states don't get me started i'll never stop talking about it i mean maybe do get me started because that's what we're talking about <laughs> um Anyway, and it's it's very interesting. This is kind of a, a pretty unified thing that, you know, even in the United States, if there was kind of a general union and um, they called for a strike based off of a governmental action, I don't see there ever being an issue that would cause the entire country to shut down. And obviously, like, the United States is a heck of a lot bigger than Israel, um, and has like you know a, a, a larger industry, larger set of industries, and, and all that. But I don't know if there's any one issue that even an entire state could get behind and kind of shut down the economy in that in that kind of way. It makes it a lot more difficult for people to get things done um, in these countries that have really strong organized labor because, you know, in the United States, it's a lot of like the only real way that we can make our voices heard is in voting. And voting is great, but once you put the person in that position, then there's kind of no oversight. Um, And there's no way to really force the um, politician to do what you want them to do. You kind of just have to hope and pray that they're going to kind of take your perspectives into account. But here's a situation in which the duly elected government of Israel is doing something that the people don't agree with, and they said, no, you're not going to do that. And they were able to make their perspective really well known. They were able to kind of influence what's going on um, with, like, kind of in a non-voting year. And I think that that's a very interesting example of how maybe America's democracy is not as strong as it could be. Um, I think there's a lot to say about that that we don't have time to get into today, but I think that it's it's an interesting conversation to have about how we're supporting further democratization in the United States and whether or not organized labor is a part of that. And I think that it probably is, um, but it's a it's a very complicated issue. And I think that like, oh, now I'm tangenting. I think that it's um, interesting to think about how organized labor has kind of re-emerged um, in the United States and how so many more kind of unique groups are unionizing today. Um, and kind of how that change is going to influence things moving forwards. But anyway, there's uh, kind of getting back to Israel more specifically. I think that it, there's also, again, I'm going to talk about the daily because whatever, There's another interesting podcast on this topic where they specifically talk about how um, reserve soldiers are among the most vocal against these reforms and have basically been saying, like, we're not going to show up to duty because they have been concerned that if there's no independent judiciary in Israel and the, the, the people or like the rest of the world kind of acknowledges that there's no independent judiciary in Israel than if there are, there might be calls for Israeli soldiers to be tried 
in international court for war crimes. Um, and obviously tr being tried in international court really changes the kind of scope and scale of their crimes. Um, and so that's been a really interesting consideration as well, that there's been people from the military who are outspoken against these reforms, people from all different industries, young people, old people, um, the really religious, the really secular, um, kind of all have this somewhat unified perspective about these judicial reforms, but the government is still trying to shove them through because of how it would benefit kind of, I guess, the people in charge. They've also been saying that these like reforms have been cooking for a long time. And so it's not a response to any like kind of particular current events, but it is still interesting to think about how people in power stand so far against the people and kind of like how they kind of claim that they know better in some way or another. Um, and there, you know, cause there are sometimes unpopular policies that have to be pushed through. In my opinion, like, yeah, they should probably raise the retirement age in France two years. That's a very unpopular policy. They're never going to get people behind it. That's just kind of the way it goes. But you know, when, when you're in any situation, when you're seeing leaders force a policy through that is very visibly and clearly unpopular, um, you have to kind of be aware of the, 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 the anti-democratic kind of implications of those things. Um, but anyway, I just think that's an interesting kind of compare and contrast, especially to the United States. Whew, that was a marathon and also a sprint. But now we're going to get into the shooting in Nashville. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So basically, um, if you have not been paying attention to the news, there was another mass shooting this week um, at an elementary school in Nashville where three adults and three children were killed, um, meaning that the total number of people injured or killed by guns at American schools this year is up to 74. 74 people were injured or killed by guns at American schools so far this year, 2023. Uh, and that includes um, 89 total gun-related incidents at schools um, so far this year, which is basically one per day. Um, and the way that they kind of classify these gun incidents are shootings, people just like bringing a gun to school, um, suicides by gun, like anything like that. Basically any, any issue where a gun was involved in a school, that's kind of how they count them up. But again, that's 89 gun-related incidents that resulted in 74 injured and killed by guns at American schools this year. Um, yeah, so I read an article, uh, apparently the federal government actually doesn't have a specific mechanism for tracking the specific details of shootings that happen at schools. Um, and again, like we, I feel like we've talked about this in the past, but the um, definition of school shooting, quote unquote, and also the definition of mass shooting are things that are kind of, um, there's a lot of disagreement over them, kind of like pedagogically, I guess. And so for that reason, it's kind of difficult for um, the federal government to really measure school shootings. Um, but, you know, other sources have done a lot of a lot of that math kind of for the federal government have been doing that tracking. 
And um, kind of looking back at 2022, there were more school shootings last year than in any year since 1999. Um, So this is, you know, becoming worse of an issue before it gets better, if you can believe it. It's not like there's a school shooting every week or anything. Um, So the shooter actually left a manifesto that indicated that the school, and it was actually, I don't think I mentioned this, but it was a religious school in Nashville. I think it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a Catholic school, Catholic private school. Um, it indicated the school and the church building were specifically targeted. Um, there's nothing to indicate that the specific victims were targeted or chosen in any way. Um, and the FBI and officials wouldn't confirm whether or not the school had been targeted for religious reasons, um, although that is something that the um, politicians have been saying they're they're kind of calling for people to investigate this as a hate crime kind of a religious hate crime that they were targeted for religious reasons um although and they're they they do know that the shooter did go to the school um but again there's no at least they haven't announced yet whether or not there's any indication that um there was kind of any religious particularly like religious reason um, why the school was targeted or whether they was just targeted because these the shooter had gone there. Um, so Tennessee also doesn't have any red flag laws. Um, so despite the fact that the shooter was under medical care and had a noted emotional disorder, they did not block him from buying seven guns at five gun shows. Um, and honest to God, I don't care if you have any kind of like emotional issue or you're under treatment or anything. If you're trying to buy multiple guns in a short period of time, that's a big enough red flag to me. I'll say it. I don't think that you should ever have, be able to buy seven guns at five gun shows in a short period of time. I don't think you should be able to buy more than one gun a year. What do you need all those guns for? What do you need all those guns for? Um, and I don't... Mm, I'm going to get worked up and I'm going to get angry. Um, so just so you know, if that's not your jam. So let's get into now what the response has been. And this is um, some of the most heinous garbage I've ever heard or read in my life. So the kind of big thing that's been overlying this entire particular case, I think the reason that it's been talked about maybe a little bit more Um, Not, of course, because, you know, three children are dead, but because the shooter appears to be transgender. So he's a transgender male. um, And that has led a lot of Republican lawmakers to, let's see, let's, let's, let's think about it here. Do we think that Republican lawmakers saw the situation and saw three dead children and said, hmm, I think maybe we should readdress gun laws in this country? Or do you think that they reinvigorated their calls to legislate transgender and queer people out of existence? I'll give you one guess. They don't care about the dead children. They don't care about the guns. They don't care about the guns. They only care about the fact that maybe this, the shooter appeared to be transgender. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, that heinous piece of garbage person, um, tweeted out a call to ban hormone therapy. Um, because the shooter may or may not have been on hormones or other forms of gender-affirming care. Um, And basically, you know, trying to change the, switch the blame and saying that it's not the guns that are at fault, it's transgenderism that's at fault. And I've said it once, I'll say it again, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a heinous piece of garbage. 
heinous piece of garbage. And it's a good thing that I can't curse on this show because I would be saying things that I cannot take back. So if you really want to think about this, it's like she was saying, you know, there was there were three shootings or four shootings that were committed by trans people since um, 2018. So like we should really be looking at like these hormone therapies and we should really be looking at like how they're affecting your brain. So do you really want to compare right now? Do you want to compare the shootings that have been committed in the last five years? Shootings committed by cis people, 2,566. Shootings committed by trans people, four. Yeah, but let's look at transgenderism as the cause for um, school shootings and shootings in general. You really want to play that game? Do you really want to play that game? It's such nonsense. It's such nonsense. And, you know, of course, this also reinvigorates the same conversation that, you know, if we're looking at, like, actual gun control policy, which is like, oh, my God, miraculous. We're having a conversation about gun control policy. Um you know, it brings up the conversation of, oh, well, you know, we should be give, we should be arming teachers. We should be arming teachers so they can protect kids. So you're going to give teachers guns, but you're going to take away books. You're going to arm the teachers with guns, but you're going to, you think that the books that they are teaching students are more dangerous than having guns in the classroom? In a hearing yesterday, one member of Congress said, and I literally burst into tears, dead kids can't read. Dead kids can't read. You think that these books are so dangerous, but you're not going to take guns out of circulation. You're going to give more guns to teachers. You're going to bring more dangerous things into, into the classroom. Heinous. And honestly, maybe this is blasphemous. I don't care. Maybe, maybe, like, mm, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to move on. Um, Politicians who are focused on banning books and banning critical race theory and think that gay people are the biggest danger that are facing children today when kids are getting mowed down by guns at schools. Who Kids who don't have a safe place to go at night. They don't have enough to eat. They don't have adequate health care. But we're going to focus on banning To Kill a Mockingbird that's really what these politicians want to focus on. And if that's what you want to focus on, then that's great. I just hope that everyone is aware of what that dichotomy looks like. I hope that people are aware that there is one group of people that actually want to help children. And there's one group of people that want to preserve a political narrative. They want to maintain a certain status quo. They don't care about children. And I want them to stop lying that they care about children and they care about their lives and their healths and their wellnesses, because they do not, they do not care about children being alive. And if they did, they wouldn't be trying to criminalize gender affirming care for children. Okay, because it's been proven over and over again, that providing gender affirming care saves kids lives. It stops these kids from committing suicide. And banning it, banning gender affirming care is going to raise even higher suicide rates for genderqueer and transgender kids. Okay, there have been multiple studies that have said that the suicide risk is reduced 73% in transgender and non-binary youths who receive gender-affirming care. I'm dying. I am dying for these piece of garbage politicians to stop pretending that they care about children. 
I'm dying for them to stop to stop claiming that they actually care about kids and care about their health and safety because they do not and they have shown over and over again that they have zero political will to do anything about gun control to do anything about providing adequate resources to help children be safe and be secure okay do you want to talk about other things them not supporting universal pre-k them not supporting you know funding child care programs okay they do not care about children and as soon as they stop pretending that they care about children i think that we can all move on you know and i think that once people recognize the depth of their hypocrisy the country's going to move in a lot better direction because they're traitors and they're evil 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 people again they care about the the critical race theory argument and the banning books argument and not allowing children to talk about gender that has nothing to do with protecting kids it has to do with preserving a, a narrative that benefits them long term okay it's it's about ensuring that they stay at the top that they're the that they're the elite and that people don't learn to think and don't learn to criticize and that makes me physically ill physically ill uh, uh, yeah and i don't know we're talking more about like gun control specifically gun control measures aren't going to change they're not going to change and republican lawmakers have acknowledged and even democratic lawmakers have acknowledged even though assault weapons were used to you know kill elementary schoolers it's not enough those those dead children it's not enough for republicans to do anything about it there was one republican member who said that we don't need gun laws we need to quote change people's hearts okay great um and tennessee where the shooting happened has even been loosening gun control restrictions and they recently lowered the minimum age at which residents can carry handguns publicly from 21 to 18. um and i'm sick to sick and tired of Republicans blaming anyone or anything but themselves for their inability to pass a single policy that will work to save real human lives. So if anyone is ever, you know, if any of these Republican politicians are ever thinking, oh, what is possibly the reason for, for all of this, you know, the, the just people who blame, oh, I'm running out of time, but we're going to do this one last thing. If you're, you know, if you're a Republican and you're like, oh, why are children so depressed? Why are our rates of mental illness so high? I hope that they look inwards. I hope that they look inwards and think about how difficult and dangerous it is to be a young person today. And I hope they recognize that it's, you know, a lot of the time, their fault. And, you know, if a lot of these people are so concerned with Jesus, I hope they look towards that, you know, good old Christian morality for answers here. Whew. Well, that's, um, that's that. I'm not going to leave you with a fun story this week because I don't think that um, I, A, I don't have the time, B, I don't think that it's um, responsible in this situation. Uh, sorry to kind of leave it off on a heavy note, um, but yeah, I'm really out of time here. So I'm just going to say I hope you all have an excellent week. I'll try to come back with some, some things that are a little lighter and fluffier next week, um, but I hope that you all are doing well enjoying the spring weather, um, and I will talk to you all in the next one.